Book Two, Chapter Three of the Four Stragglers by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mad Millionaire. It's an amazing place, said Howard Locke. Yes, isn't it? said Polly Wicks. But come along, you haven't seen it all yet. Is there more? Howard Locke asked with pretended incredulity. I've seen a private power plant, an aquarium that contains more varieties of fish than I ever imagined swam in the sea, a house as magnificent and spacious as a palace, stables, gardens, flowers, bowers of Eden. More? Really? I think Gardy was right, observed Polly Wicks naively. Yes? inquired Howard Locke. Polly Wicks arched her eyebrows. He said you weren't a ladies' man. Oh, said Howard Locke with a grin. So he's been talking behind my back, has he? I'm afraid so, she admitted. And may I ask why you agree with him? Why I am condemned? Because, said Polly Wicks, it would have been ever so much nicer, instead of saying what you did, to have expressed delight that the tour of inspection wasn't over, something about charming company, you know, even if everything you saw bored you to death. Unfair, Locke frowned with mock severity, most unfair. I was going to say something like that, and now I can't because you'll swear you put the words into my mouth, and I simply parroted them. Sir, she said airily, will you see the bungalows and the piccaninnies next, or the boathouse? I am contrite and humble, he said meekly. Polly Wick's laughter rippled out on the air. Come on, then, she cried, and turning, began to run along the path through the grove of trees where they had been walking. Locke followed. She ran like a young fawn. He stumbled once awkwardly, and she turned and laughed at him. He felt the color mount into his cheeks, felt a tinge of chagrin. Was she vamping him? Did she know that if his eyes had been occupied with where he was going, and not with her, he would not have stumbled? Or was she just a little sprite of nature, full to overflowing with life, buoyant, and the more glorious for an unconscious expression of the joy of living? Amazing, he had called what he had seen on this island, since he had been installed here as a guest that morning, but most amazing of all was Newcomb's ward. Newcomb's ward! It was rather strange. Who was she? How had a girl like this come to be Captain Newcomb's ward? Newcomb had not been communicative save only on the point that since she had gone to America to school, Newcomb had not seen her. Rather strange, that, too. He was conscious that she piqued him one moment, while the next found him possessed of a mad desire to touch, for instance, those truant wisps of hair that now, as she stood waiting for him on the edge of the shore, a little out of breath, the color glowing in her cheeks, she retrieved with deft little movements of her fingers. Her color deepened suddenly. "'That's the boathouse over there,' she said. "'I, I beg your pardon?' said Locke in confusion, and then deliberately, "'No, I don't.' Polly Wicks stared. Again the color in her cheeks came and went swiftly. "'Oh!' she gasped, then hurriedly, "'Well, perhaps that is better. Don't you think those two little bridges from the rocks up to the boathouse are awfully pretty?' "'Awfully!' 
laughed Locke. "'You're not looking at them at all,' said Polly Wicks severely. "'Yes, I am,' asserted Locke, and, just to prove it, I was going to ask why that amazing structure—you see, I said amazing again—that looks more like the home of a yacht-club than a private boathouse—is built out into the water like that, and requires those bridges at all. Is it on account of the tide? I see there's no beach here." "'I'm sure I don't know,' said Polly Wicks. "'But they are pretty, aren't they? And the place does look like a clubhouse. And it looks more like one inside. There's a lovely little lounging-room, with an open fireplace, and I can't begin to tell you what else. Shall we go in?' "'Yes, rather,' said Locke. He was studying the place now with a yachtsman's eye. It was built out from the rocky shore a considerable distance, and rested on an outer series of small concrete piers, placed a few feet apart, while, by stooping down, he could see, beneath the overhang of the veranda, a massive centre-pier, wide and long, obviously the main foundation of the building. At the two corners facing the shore were the little bridges, built in shape like a curving ramp, and ornamented with rustic railings, that she had referred to. These led from a point well above high-water mark, on the shore to the veranda of the boathouse itself. "'Mr. Marlin must be an enthusiast,' he said, as he followed his guide across one of the bridges. Polly Wicks did not answer at once, and they began to make the circuit of the veranda. Howard Locke glanced at her. Her face had become suddenly sobered, the dark eyes somehow deeper, a sensitive quiver now around the corners of her lips. His glance lengthened into an unconscious stare. She could be serious then, and, yes, equally attractive in that mood. It became her. He wondered if she knew it became her. That was cynical on his part. Was he trying to arm himself with cynicism? Well, it was easily pierced then, that armour. It was a very wonderful face, not merely beautiful, but fine in the sense of steadfastness, self-reliance and sincerity. He was a poor cynic. Why not admit that she attracted him as no woman had ever attracted him before? They had reached the seaward side of the veranda. Here a short dock was built out to meet a sort of sea-wall that gave protection to any craft that might be berthed there. But the slip was empty of boats. She looked up at him now, as she answered his observation. "'He was,' she said slowly, "'but all the boats are stowed away inside now. Poor Mr. Marlin!' She turned away abruptly, her eyes suddenly moist. "'Let's go inside.' They found a cosy corner in the little lounging-room of which she had spoken, and seated themselves. Locke picked up the thread of their conversation. "'You're very fond of him, aren't you, Miss Wicks?' he said gently. "'Yes,' she said simply. "'It's a very strange case,' said Howard Locke. "'And a very, very sad one,' said Polly Wicks. "'I don't know how much Dora, Miss Marlin, has said to you, or perhaps even Mr. Marlin himself, for he is sometimes just like, like anybody else, so I don't. I hardly think it could be a case of trespassing on confidences in any event, Locke interrupted quietly. It's rather well known outside, that is, in what might be called the financial world, you know. 
What I can't understand, though, is that, having lost all his money, a place like this could still be kept up. Polly Wicks shook her head thoughtfully. Gardy was speaking about the same thing, she said. But I don't think it costs so very much now. You see, it is almost in a way self-supporting, the vegetables and fruit and fuel and all that, and the servants all have their little homes, and have lived on the island for years, and the wages are not very high, and anyway, Dora has a fortune in her own name, from her mother, you know, and, besides, thank goodness, dear old Mr. Marlin hasn't lost all his money anyway. Not lost it? ejaculated Locke. Why, that was the cause of his mind breaking. Polly Wicks looked up in confusion. Oh, perhaps I shouldn't have said that, she said nervously. But, but after all, I don't see why I shouldn't, for you could not help but know about it before very long. Indeed, I shouldn't be a bit surprised if Mr. Marlin showed it to you himself, just as he did to me, for he seems to have taken a great fancy to you. He hardly let you out of his sight this morning. He knows my father in a business way, said Locke. I suppose that's it. Do you mean that he showed you a sum of money here on this island? Yes, said Polly Wicks slowly, after I had been here a little while. A very large sum, half a million, he said. Good heavens, exclaimed Locke, that's hardly safe, is it? I know the peculiar form his disease has taken is an antipathy to all investments, but can't Miss Marlin persuade him to deposit it somewhere? That's exactly what Gardy said, nodded Polly Wicks. But it's quite useless. Dora has tried, but her father won't even tell her where he keeps it. Howard Locke rose from his chair, walked over to the empty fireplace, and, standing with his back to Polly Wicks, opened his cigarette case. Captain Newcomb, of course, is quite au fait with the conditions, he observed casually. Of course, said Polly Wicks ingenuously. I naturally wrote him all about it. Naturally, agreed Howard Locke. He stooped over and, striking a match on the edge of the fireplace, lighted his cigarette. So Captain Francis Newcomb had known all about it, had he, even before he had left England? and yet Captain Francis Newcomb in the smoking-room of the liner on the way across had been densely in ignorance, and even alarmed for his ward's safety at the first intimation that her host was a monomaniac. It was rather peculiar, more than peculiar. Locke turned and, leaning against the mantel over the fireplace, faced Polly Wicks. His mind was working swiftly, piecing together strange and apparently irrelevant fragments, that, irrelevant as they appeared, seemed to make a most suggestive whole. Captain Newcomb had lied that night on board the liner. Why? Who was it that had invaded his Locke's stateroom and had searched through his belongings? And why? Why was it that now, for the first time in four years, Captain Newcomb should have come to visit his ward in America? He had more than Newcomb's word for that. Polly here had said so herself, and Miss Marlin had referred to it in the most natural way when welcoming Newcomb that morning. What had an insane old man, who hid half a million dollars on a little island in the Florida Keys, got to do with the letter received in London, and containing those facts that Polly Wicks had just admitted she had written? What did it mean? 
Was it a certain insistent deduction to be carried to a logical conclusion, or was he hunting a mare's nest in his mind? Was it a mere coincidence in life, where far stranger coincidences were daily happenings, or was it a half-million dollars? And Polly Wicks here, Captain Francis Newcomb, and his ward. Was it a bird of paradise, in cahoots with a vulture? No, he wouldn't believe that. It was preposterous. There weren't any grounds for it anyway. He was an irresponsible fool. He became angry with himself. He was worse than a fool. He was a cad. The girl's very ingenuousness in what she had said put to rout any possibility of connivance. But, damn it, Captain Newcomb's ward? How? What was the explanation of that? And if... Polly Wick's small foot beat the floor in a sharp little tattoo. Locke straightened up with a start. In his fit of abstraction he had been gazing at the girl with abominable rudeness. "'I forgot to say,' said Polly Wicks severely, "'that besides saying you were not a ladies' man, Gardy said something else about you.' "'No, surely not.' Locke forced a mock dismay into his voice. "'What was it?' Polly Wicks took a critical survey of the toe of her spotless white shoe. He said he didn't know whether I would like you or not. Locke took a step forward from the fireplace. And do you? he demanded. I do not, she said promptly. At least not when I am utterly ignored for a whole five minutes, except to be stared at as though I were a specimen under a microscope. I'm awfully sorry, said Locke contritely. Really I am. I was thinking of what we had been saying about Mr. Marlin, and— she suddenly lifted a warning finger. "'There he is now,' she said in a low voice. Locke turned around. His back had been to the door, leading to the seaward side of the veranda, which they had left open behind them. Mr. Marlin was peering cautiously around the jamb of the door, and now, as the blue eyes under the silvered hair, which was rumpled and astray, caught his, Locke's, the old man thrust a beckoning finger into view. Locke glanced at Polly Wicks. "'I think,' she said in a whisper, "'that he has been acting more strangely just of late than ever before. He wants you for something. Of course, you must go and see what it is.' "'All right,' said Locke. He walked quietly across the room and out onto the veranda. "'You wanted to speak to me, Mr. Marlin?' he said pleasantly. It was a queer, strangely contradictory figure that of the little stoop-shouldered old man, who now seized his arm in feverish haste, and led him hurriedly away from the door, and quite a different figure from the Mr. Marlin of the morning. The white clothes were spruce and immaculate, but he wore no hat, and, as Locke had already noted, his hair was dishevelled. The thin, almost gaunt face, a rather fine old face, had lost the calm and composure that had marked it, for instance, a few hours ago at lunch, and there was now a furtive, hunted look in the eyes, a spasmodic twitching of the facial muscles, a sort of pathetic tearing aside of the veil that he had so jealously striven to hide the man's affliction. And yet, too, and perhaps even more pathetic in this particular, there seemed to cling intangibly about the old financier a certain dignity of manner and bearing, the one heritage possibly of the days when he had been a power, his name a talisman in the money markets of the world. 
"'I don't want to hear,' said Mr. Marlin mysteriously. "'I can't trust her, Locke.' "'Can't trust her?' repeated Locke. "'You can't trust Miss Wicks? Why, surely, Mr. Marlin, you are making a mistake. Why can't you trust her?' "'Because,' said the old man sharply, "'she is the ward of Captain Newcomb.' Locke stared into the other's face. A half-angry, half, yes, that was it, cunning gleam, had come into the blue eyes. "'What is the matter with Captain Newcomb?' he asked bluntly. "'He's a philanthropist,' snapped Mr. Marlin. "'A philanthropist! And all philanthropists are fools with money!' "'Oh,' said Locke a little helplessly, "'so that's it, is it? Yes, of course. But I did not know Captain Newcomb was a philanthropist.' "'What else is he?' demanded Mr. Marlin fiercely. "'Polly Wicks herself proves it. Do you know who Polly Wicks is?' No, you don't. I'll tell you. I heard her tell Dora. She was a poor girl, sold flowers on the street corners in London. Newcomb spends his money like water on her, education, clothes, thousands. He is a philanthropist. That is enough. Good Lord, muttered Locke to himself. The man hadn't been anything like this during the several hours that, off and on, he had been in the other's company that morning. The man had seemed almost, if not wholly, rational then. It was one of the idiosyncratic phases of the disease, of course. There was nothing to do but humour him. Captain Francis Newcomb, a philanthropist. Five minutes ago he had come to quite another conclusion. "'Yes, I see,' he said seriously. They had walked around the corner of the veranda, and now, halfway down the side, he halted. "'But there was something you wanted to speak to me about, Mr. Marlin, wasn't there?' "'Yes,' said the old man eagerly. He looked cautiously around him in all directions. "'I put great faith in you as your father's son. I have never met your father, but I know of him. I know a great deal about him. He is a power. You must influence him. The world is facing a crisis, but we may yet save it from ruin. I must have a conference with you where no one can hear or see.' no one must see do you understand that is most important some people think i am a little touched in the head but they are fools i shall show you my boy for i shall have with me the proof that i am in earnest and the evidence that i practice what i preach you shall see for yourself who is the fool to-morrow night he fumbled in the pocket of his coat and drew out a little book what day is to-day and what is the date "'Yes, yes, of course. This is Tuesday, isn't it?' "'Yes,' said Locke gravely. "'Today is Tuesday.' "'Tuesday, the twenty-fifth,' mumbled the old man, as he consulted the book. "'Yes, yes.' He returned the book to his pocket. "'Very well, then. Tomorrow night. Meet me in the aquarium tomorrow night at a quarter past two. Locke, for the sake of nonchalance, carefully selected another cigarette from his case and lighted it. A quarter past two to-morrow night. If it were not pitiable, it would be absurd that the old man should have come down here in this manner to the boathouse to make an appointment for to-morrow night when in the natural course of events he would have been afforded an endless number of infinitely more convenient opportunities to make the same request. And why to-morrow night, 
other than to-night, or this afternoon, or even now? And why at such an hour? It was useless to ask the question, for it found its answer simply in the workings of a poor unhinged mind, and yet Locke found himself asking the question mechanically. That's a rather unusual hour, isn't it, Mr. Marlin? And why to-morrow night? Why not to-night, for instance? The old man came close, and gripped Locke's arm again with feverish intensity. He looked all around him, then placed his lips to Locke's ear. "'I'll tell you why,' he whispered. "'Since last night I have been watched and followed, watched and followed all the time, all the time, all the time. They think I am mad, that my reason is gone. Ha, <laughs> ha! Can you imagine that, young man? Well, they will see.' and so it cannot be to-night, for I must be very careful, and I must have time to prepare. And the hour? You do not understand that? Well, I will tell you something else. The hour is fixed. It cannot be altered. It cannot be changed. It is fixed. He gripped suddenly with a fiercer pressure on Locke's arm. Ha! Did I not tell you I was always being watched and followed? He breathed excitedly. Listen, listen! there is someone coming now. The old man was trembling violently. Locke laid his hand reassuringly upon the other's shoulder. It was quite true that there was distinctly the sound of someone's footsteps coming across one of the little bridges from the shore, the one on the far side of the boathouse from where they stood obviously, for the one on this side was in plain view. Why, Mr. Marlin, Locke smiled, it's only someone coming to the boathouse. That's quite natural. There's nothing to cause you alarm in that. But just to set your mind at rest, we'll go and see who it is. No, no, whispered Mr. Marlin fiercely. No one must know that I suspect anything. I can elude them. They're around on the other side now. You stay here. Don't move. I'm going now. But remember, tomorrow night, you will remember? "'Yes, of course, Mr. Marlin,' Locke replied soothingly. The old man laid his finger to his lips. "'Not a word about it. No one must know. Keep silent. You will see, you will see. But I must be quick now. I will elude them. Keep silent. Not a word.' The old man was running at top speed along the veranda. Locke leaned against the railing, his face strangely set as he watched the flying figure cross the bridge, and, with head constantly jerking around to peer first over one shoulder and then the other, disappear finally along the shore. "'Good Lord!' muttered Locke to himself again. "'And this morning he appeared to be as sane as I am.' He frowned suddenly. "'Queer obsession, that, of being constantly watched. Since last night. I wonder.' He straightened up abruptly, and drew a letter from his pocket. He read it slowly, carefully, several times, as though almost he were memorizing it, and then he began to tear it into little pieces. "'I guess it's safer,' he confided to himself, and then, with a grim smile, "'Perhaps it's just as well I didn't have anything like this with me that night on board ship.' He threw the pieces over into the water but one fluttered back through the railing. And, staring at this, he laughed a little shortly as his eyes deciphered the typewritten fragment on the veranda floor. 
L.L. Reports Approved. Use W. Scotland Yard. Fully pre. He picked it up, tore it into minute shreds, searched carefully to make sure there were no other wayward scraps, and then started slowly back along the veranda to rejoin Polly Wicks. His mind seemed in confusion, coherence smothered in a multitude of thoughts that impinged one upon the other, each vociferating its right to sole consideration. There was Newcomb and that smoking-room scene on the liner, and a letter advising about a half-million dollars, and a madman, and, no, there was something else, something that was gradually gaining priority over the rest. Yes, Polly Wicks, well, Polly Wicks, then, a flower-girl in London, a lady four years later in America. How old had she been when this had happened? How old had she been? Confound it! What did he mean by that? What did he mean? She couldn't have been more than a child, a mere child. He halted abruptly at the sound of his own name. Unconsciously he had almost reached the door leading into the lounging-room of the boathouse. Polly Wicks was talking to someone. To whoever it was, of course, whose arrival at the boathouse had frightened old Mr. Marlin away a few minutes ago. Ah, yes, Newcomb. That was Newcomb laughing now. But just the same, said Polly Wicks, it does seem a little strange to me that Mr. Locke would make such a trip with you on so short acquaintance. Nonsense, replied Captain Francis Newcomb. There's nothing strange about it. You don't know that type of young American, that's all. The short acquaintance end of it is purely the insular English viewpoint. He had a holiday on his hands, as I told you, and he meant to spend it on his boat somewhere. We hit it off splendidly together, coming over, and, well, we've hit it off splendidly ever since, that's all. Let's change the subject, then, said Polly Wicks. Captain Francis Newcomb laughed complacently. I was going to, he said. I want to speak to you about last night. I don't care for your choice, said Polly Wicks, in what seemed to Locke like sudden agitation. I haven't been able to get that horrible cry out of my mind all day, and I hardly slept at all when I went to bed. But, my dear, that is utterly absurd, Captain Francis Newcomb returned, with another laugh. I can only repeat what I said to you this morning that it must have been some boatmen out on the water catcalling to each other. I was startled myself at first, and a bit angry, I'll admit, at the thought that someone was taking liberties with us. But I am quite sure now it was nothing of the kind. You mustn't give it another thought. Really. It isn't worth it. But I wasn't going to refer to that again. What I wanted to know was whether or not you told Miss Marlin about seeing her father out there at that hour of night. Yes said Polly Wicks. I told her, and she said she knew he sometimes went out night after night for a number of nights, and that, strangely enough, he'd go out later each night until finally it would be just before daybreak when he left the house, and then, after that, for a long while, he wouldn't go out at all. She said she had never given her father an inkling that she knew, and had never put any restraint upon him. As I have told you, what the doctors have warned her about, and what she is more afraid of than anything else, is arousing any suspicion in her father's mind that he requires watching, or is being watched. There is the danger that he might become violent. In fact, 
It is almost certain that he would, under such conditions, Dr. Damer said. Hmm, commented Captain Francis Newcomb. A chair creaked within. A footstep sounded on the floor approaching the door. And Howard Locke retreated quietly around the corner of the boathouse. End of Book Two, Chapter Three